Nature has neither core nor skin. She's both at once, outside and in. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. That quote came from today's guest, Donna LaPrey. She is our family friend of both me and my mother, my stepfather, and my girlfriend, Vivian. She runs Tender Flower, and Tender Flower is the kind of the umbrella for everything she does with her plants. About 85% of what she makes comes from herbs and flowers grown in her own biodynamic garden. So she makes perfumes that are absolutely unbelievable. She does skincare products, which I haven't test, you know, I haven't done much with my, I don't have as much experience with those. Um, she also makes art. She does, she dyes fabric. Um, she makes little, uh, like poppet dolls and she does installation pieces with dyed pieces of fabric and with imprinting, um, making prints with, uh, plant material. So she's really, like I say in this podcast, a Renaissance woman. She does a lot, but the focus is around plants and more particularly the plants that she's grown in her garden in, um, with biodynamic methods and in her own way. So here's a little story that I was told about Donna by her partner that I think is very uh, telling of who she is. And I found it's very charming little story. So he told us that one of their neighbors was driving behind Donna once and all of a sudden Donna breaks abruptly and the neighbor thinks like, oh, oh my, what's about to happen? Is a deer about to jump out into the road? Maybe a squirrel is, you know, zipping back and forth, about to be crushed by the wheels of Donna's car. Like, what, what, what's happening here? So he comes to an abrupt halt behind her, and he's waiting to see what, what's happening. It doesn't look like anything's happening. And then all of a sudden, he sees little butterflies flutter past from in front of Donna's windshield. And so her local legend is Donna stops for butterflies. I mean, how wonderful is that? (laughs) So I really enjoyed today's conversation. When I left Donna, I felt as though I was the most connected that I've ever been in any of these interviews. And I felt as though I was listening more intensely. And I really said to myself that I need to be like this from here on out. I need to be this connected to the person, like this focused on what they're saying because I am I can easily daydream. So I really felt on point with today. And I really, um, 
I really keep going on and on where I'm asking Donna to illustrate her spiritual life. And uh, hopefully I'm not pushing it too much. And I think Donna knows that I genuinely want, I'm genuinely interested to see life through her eyes. So I keep asking for examples to kind of better understand how she sees the world or her um, experience of the world. And I'm going to relay something that I basically learned last night. Um, I have a weekly men's group and the leader of that group, leaders doesn't sound like, it sounds like a funky word, like it's a cult, but the, the, the man who puts on the group, the men's group is, he's also my Jungian dream analyst and kind of like a life coach in many ways. And he was telling the group something I've heard many times before being, uh, being interested in Jung's work, but it was a little clarified last night and I actually was able to relate it to this conversation. What he was telling us is basically about the personality types. And often when there's miscommunication, it's because these personality types are opposites. And the goal in one's life is to bring all of these personality types into into consciousness and into clarity. So things you might already know about extroversion and introversion, quite opposite. So the extrovert gets their energy from the external world. The introvert gets their energy from within. So then there's sensation versus intuition. So sensation, they get their information from the material world. So what they can touch, statistics, stuff, you know, Stuff like that. That is what is real. What's right now, what you can touch, what you can see, that's real. For the intuitive, what's real is instantaneous knowing. It's, um, you know, it could be much more spiritual. It's much more the realm of the artist. Then there's thinking versus feeling. Thinking is, um, you know, that one's obvious. Thinking. And feeling is... Both of these are how we perceive knowledge. So thinking, you sit there pondering it over. Feeling, it's just an instant, like, I like that, I don't like that. That's the way I've been told about this. So uh, for me, I don't need to think about it. If I see a movie or if I hear a song within one second, and I'm serious, within one second of listening to a piece of music, I know if I hate the song or love the song. There's no thinking that could will change my mind on that. And both of these are are also equal in their perception of the world. So often we have miscommunications here. Okay, so what he was describing to us last night was that the hardest for communication is when it's the same function and one is introverted and one is extroverted. And I think that's what happened in this conversation. And that's why I'm telling it to you because I found I think this is quite interesting here. I'm an intuitive as an artist. Donna, I believe, is an intuitive as an artist and as an extremely spiritual person. Now, my intuition comes from the extroverted world. I get my ideas. I soak them up like a sponge. So everything that happens around me, everything I hear, 
everything I learn, everything I experience when I'm hunting, when I'm foraging, when I'm walking around the woods, all of that, every mythology, all of that, I absorb into my own experiences and my own knowing, my own intuition. And that's usually where all of my art comes from. I believe that Donna is an introverted intuitive. So all of her knowing comes from, she's directly connected to intuition. She's in it, living within it. And that's why I think that perhaps there's a tiny bit of friendly tension between us throughout this conversation because I keep saying, Donna, give me an example of, of your spiritual experience. Give me an example. Paint me a picture. Um, write it. You know, I keep saying things like, I need a hard example. I need a hard example because I need to, I need to see what that intuitive experience is like. And whereas trying to ask that of an introverted intuitive, it might make little sense. Why do you keep asking me this? So anyways, I just, to me, hearing that last night, it clarified already what I felt was a very um, connected and thought-provoking interview. It just added an extra level and was helpful for me to understand and to remind myself of these different functions when I move forward with interviews because to the best of my ability, if I can get a sense of what the other person is, I can hopefully find those things, find those functions within myself to better communicate, at least at first, on the level, on their function. So anyways, this is extremely hard, can be very difficult stuff. And I hope you're finding this interesting and um, hopefully following along. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm repeating what my, my mentor has taught me. So this is not my... This is not my thinking. I'm an extroverted thinker. I get my thinking a lot from the external world, from from people infinitely uh, wiser than anything I'll ever think of in my life. Okay, so before we get to the interview, if you want to check out Donna online, uh, you can find her on Instagram at tenderflower.botanicals and, and her website is tenderflower.net. And there you can find her beauty products. Uh, Like I mentioned, what I can speak to is her wonderful art and her perfumes. I've worn her one of her perfumes before, Isla, and it is an experience. We actually talk on this podcast for maybe 45 minutes or 30 minutes about perfumes and what the experience of a perfume. I found that extremely fascinating. Okay, well... Enjoy this episode. Thank you everyone for listening along. I really appreciate it as I'm learning from all these people, especially my elders, which is the fo- is more and more the focus of this podcast is to learn from the people who are have been here before me and to learn how they have navigated a passionate and uh, deep lifestyle. And I really appreciate it. And I've got some exciting ones coming up throughout winter. I'm planning to interview my landlady who runs United Plant Savers. Uh, she has got some unbelievable stories, and they come, they'll come they come out of nowhere in conversation. She's lived in the jungle of Costa Rica uh, with a tribe. I'm planning to 
go up to northern Pennsylvania to speak with a buckskin tanner who does brain tanning, and that's their that's his family's business. They do a lot of buckskins for reenactors. Um, they do them for indigenous people, and uh, I guess for whoever's interested in having beautiful hides. So that's an exciting one, and there's a lot more planned. But thank you, and here we go. Let's talk to Donna. Okay, well, Donna, let's describe for the people listening a little bit about where we are. So you're in um, Little Washington. I'm not in Little Washington. Actually, it's Washington, Virginia. Okay. And Little Washington was, it's a bone of contention around here. Hmm. It's something that um, the people with the inn kind of made up. Oh, and it's always been Washington, Virginia. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Right. So, so, so this inn is a quite famous, I yes. think it's three Michelin starred. I, maybe four now. Oh. I can't remember. But, but a very famous, renowned inn with uh, you know, show, showmanship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, restaurant. They have it's the, a destination place for, for people. Especially in Washington D.C., and the the people who come and greet you are all dressed up, kind of nineteen what? Uh, turn of the century, yeah. Edwardian mm-hmm. in the summer, boaters and bow ties. Um, all the chefs wear Dalmatian print pants because the owner. There used to be two owners; they split up, but the remaining owner has a always has a Dalmatian mascot dog. Mm. And you're about a mile, a mile or two, a mile away. Down, and then it's and, on my morning walk. If I walk, when I walk, I usually walk and make a two quick two mile loop before I get going in the garden. And on that walk, you can literally just look at the Shenandoah National Park. Absolutely, that's that mountain chain. Right. I mean, if you step out from your house to the road, you can see the Shenandoah National Park. It's right there. Right. Right. It's not that far away. Super cool. Right. I could just I could walk across the street. Uh, trespass through people's yards and climb right up into mm-hmm. the park. Super cool. And you have this wonderful garden here. You've kind of made, because you are, you're on a back country road that is inhabited, in, is inhabited. There are quite a few houses on it, but you've really built this little sanctuary here. You have all these big um, evergreens that you're kind of, uh, kind of closed in. You've kind of created your own little secret garden back here in a way. No. Yeah, uh, it's become a lot more developed around. It used to be cows on both sides. Oh, the land on one side now, a small parcel, a narrow two-acre piece, has sold to city people for a little kind of toy getaway cabin. Mm-hmm. So that's going up. So for the first time in twenty years, my privacy is is gone out the window. But people sometimes have a hard time finding me. Now, these evergreen trees on the front and on the side, they were planted, oh, let's see, about 50 years ago. Oh, before you got here. Oh, yeah, Mm. yeah. There were a few trees here. I planted almost everything, shrubs, everything. This place was bush-hopped all the way in the back. Mm. It was, there was nothing, the back forest. 
So it, I tell people that I'm hidden in plain sight here. Can you describe your garden a little bit? So you have a really special and, I mean, kind of a magical garden back here. Mm-hmm. And we are right now we're sitting up against your potting shed, which I just read your Instagram post about it. It's quite a little story with the potting shed. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, could you describe your garden? I mean, that's a lot. You have a lot going on back here, but it's really a really beautiful garden. Well, thank you. It's the third garden that I've had. I wrote about my first garden, which is really a magical story Hmm. in the blog section of my website. And then I had a second garden in the rental house we lived in for three years when I first moved to Virginia after leaving New York. And this place, finding it was kind of a magical experience. It It was pretty startling. But there was really nothing here, a few shrubs, and just, you know, scraped down to the grass land. And so I began with a couple of areas to to put in the plants that I had been growing in pots and from and things I moved from my last garden. So I just made a quick few areas. But this this first the um area where you see this copper construction, this sphere that's called a Genesa crystal. Hmm. This was the first, so I laid this out, and that was, it's based on a medicine wheel. Part of my ancestry is Mi'kmaq hmm. Indian from Canada, hmm. from Nova Scotia. So, it was very interesting, and then there's, there's some on my, on my mom's side, too, from Canada. It was very interesting laying this out because... I was looking at a book and, you know, contemplating it. And I remember having the book on the ground somewhere. And I was going back and forth with these rocks, which had been in my previous garden at the rental place. I had an extensive garden there. and it was You brought the rocks? Yeah, it was really magical. These rocks were given to me by the first people we met. You know, they were neighbors. In a, in a different neighborhood of Rappahannock County. And, uh, and we got the rocks from their land. They came to my circle garden. My whole garden was a circle garden at the rental house. And I had to have them. They were an integral part of the garden. I decided this was going to be more of a medicine wheel rather than a triscalian, which was my other garden. So I started laying it out and I was going back and Can forth. Can you describe what that word tries? I've never heard that word. Oh, what it's a that? Celtic. It's a, it's a three-armed, not really a spiral, but uh, you'll have to, okay. I'll write it down so you can look it up. It's a symbol. Yes. And well, you it's, literally it's, shaped it's more than a symbol. Um, but yeah, you could call it a symbol. And you shaped your garden in that shape? That was the shape of the pass. It was a circle and then triscalian so pass. Cool. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Then I did this one when I was doing this one. At some point, I forgot what I was doing by looking at the book. Oh, yes, this rock, whatever, this rock. And then something took over in me and said, you know how to do this. You know how to do this. Never mind that book. And I just started choosing the stones. I knew what they were for, and I put them, put them in there. And then afterwards, I looked back at the book and said, ah, 
you know, I'm not sure whether, I mean, it was a, it was a really interesting feeling. I don't know if subliminally I picked it all up in one fell swoop from the book. It didn't feel like that. It felt more like well, from your some, some, ancestral yes. knowledge about it? Yeah. Something hmm. from far away, long ago, was speaking through me. Who are these people? You said Micmac? Micmac. Who mm-hmm. are these? Do you know much about them? This is, this is a part of my ancestry. I know the least about intellectually, but hmm. my whole life as a child, I did things that were very indian like mm. uh, take food and in the autumn and dig pits and line them with grass and sticks and bury food in there and weave like a lattice structure on top and then cover it with earth and moss so I could find it later. Mm. A lot of strange things like that. Now, was that, a, <laughs> was that like a, a ritual or to cook in the ground? No, it was just just storing, preserving food. Oh, oh, okay. Preserving I see. food. Okay, yeah. So like a and a, an ancient cellar, root cellar. Yeah. Ooh, just got yeah. A, a mosquito. Little things like that. Um, sticking. It. I don't know. Just doing things that had no had no basis in my life of mm-hmm. reading mm-hmm. or any information from my parents. None. Where was this? Where did you grow up? In Massachusetts and okay. Rhode Island. Okay. Yeah, I was born in Rhode Island, grew up in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Mm. So do you know what kind of people the Micmac people were? I guess you said intellectually you're not, you don't know too much, but just, you know, what kind of, you know, any bit, anything about their culture? Were they agricultural or were they nomadic? Oh, or? Fish, fishing, mm. hunting, mm. really powerful herbal medicinal people. Mm. And amazing storytellers. I know a little bit. I actually made friends with somebody who lives in Nova Scotia and lives in Mi'kmaq territory. And she has Mi'kmaq ancestry in her parts of her family too. So there is plans, there are plans for me to visit her at some point Hmm. because both of us know that it's really important for me to go up there and... Well, I think this really podcast. Feel that. I think this podcast will be coming out in December because we're backlogged. But oh, hopefully, December. you'll get a bunch of the first week. Maybe hopefully, you'll get a bunch of Christmas sales. Maybe crossing fingers, and then you can go to that would be, go to Nova Scotia. <laughs> that would be lovely. That is really cool. Um, well, we kind of just got right into it, but I did so something I've been wanting to do with my podcast, and sometimes immediately we get we go flying off into some on some tangent. But I did. I do like to ask. Uh, just kind of a small talk. Have you had any interesting plant, animal, fungus, weather observations maybe in the past week? And and I'll start. Last night, so let's see. So uh, you're friends with my landlady who's Susan of United Plant Savers. She's, mm-hmm. She runs United Plant Savers. And her boyfriend is actually a really talented gardener. And he's been doing the garden at the property I, I, I uh, rent. And anyways, he loves mushrooms. So a lot of because I've been, even the three years I've lived down here, mushrooms have been the most scary to me. But now that I'm starting to dabble with the mushrooms, I go to him to kind of, I showed him my chanterelles that I found um, two weeks ago. And I showed him the chicken in the woods. And it's like, hey, can you really make sure I know what I'm doing? So he mentioned a few days ago, he's like on the dirt road that we live on. He's like, there's uh, the jack-o'-lanterns. 
And so I was like, that's one of those bioluminescent mushrooms. I've never seen that before. So last night we drove up on the road and last night had like a strange, maybe this early autumnal, it had a hauntedness last night. There was a an intensity to the mm-hmm. the darkness last night. So Vivian and I like parked on on the gravel road and we went and looked at them and I've never seen a bioluminescent mushroom. And, you know, obviously you had to let your eyes kind of adapt from the car light. And um, yeah, we could see the faintest glow when you put your face really close in the gills, this like faint blue glow. And I was like, wow, is it really that dim? And then did some research online. And I guess supposedly... The bioluminescent mushrooms will, um, they have their own mysterious circadian rhythm where they will uh, amplify, they they like dim and become more bright just by their own, Mm. their own, I don't know what you want to say. Their their own nest. Design. Design. Yes. So I don't know where we caught it, but just to see my first glowing mushroom is like, holy moly. I've, ne- I've never seen them. It sounds wonderful. Yeah, I I, oh, I wanted to look what kind of tree it was, so I missed that part. Ah. But it was a circle of the jack o' lanterns all around the tree, like a like a magical ring. You know, they were broken apart; they were clumps, but there were clumps all around the tree and a like some patches that were like three feet of the jack o' lanterns. Pretty cool. That is cool. Wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. Very special. So yeah, any anything interesting you've seen around? In, in the garden or on your walks or anything lately? Um, well, I want I do want to go, get back to talk talk about the garden a little okay. bit because for sure because um, I I only mentioned one little thing but mm-hmm. I want to give some context because but but um as far as interesting things I mean everything is so interesting to me in the beginning when I started this garden gardening when I lived in New York. The magical things, most of them were so much more intense. And be- as I've grown and changed, I find the smallest things that other people would find probably not very interesting, mm. incredibly magical. Mm. So, do you have an example to illustrate that? Uh, well. And I, I will tell you something that happened last night because it's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But I will just sometimes be standing near a plant and loving loving it. And maybe a butterfly will come by and I'll start appreciating the butterfly and talking to it. And it will fly over and start twirling around, sometimes fly up and touch me. And fly away. So there's there's an intense communication I'm always having. And last night, I was going back in the house. I came out to do my little round of, you know, check on everything and go go in for the night, which feels nice now that I can rest more at night. And I was standing near the house, near one part of the garden, and I thought, I'm just going to disappear into the plant life here. And I felt myself swaying a little bit, you know, and being really like dispersed in my energy field through the plants. And all of a sudden, a raccoon came out of the bushes and started walking over towards me. And I was really quiet and it got so close. And then I said something to it and it looked at me and (laughs) kind of froze and then scurried off. Mm. So... 
there's I noticed on my way here, there's a lot of uh, roadkill raccoons. So there's something going on with them right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're doing, I don't know if right now is their rut, their mating. I'm not sure, but there's something going on with them moving around. But that is really cool. I haven't seen that many raccoons. You think you would, but you don't see that many outside. I've seen them a few times walking around at night, but they're not they're not comfortable around humans. There mm-hmm. are raccoons here. There are, there are a lot of animals that live on this land. So now I can say going back to the garden, I made mm-hmm. this to grow food, of course, and flowers and herbs. But as really as a wildlife sanctuary for to give nature something. And I'm a biodynamic gardener, so that is a whole big thing in itself. The whole idea is with the gardening to give to nature and not follow along in the typical extractive mode that's the template almost everybody goes along with in this modern world. That's the extract, the, extract, extract. The bio that ethos is built into the biodynamic or well, your it, well it, yeah it's it, but it's not it's not stated as such it's mm. because biodynamics is the most holistic way of gardening there is it existed before organic gardening it came out of um, the practical spiritual initiatives that Rudolf Steiner developed so that people would not forget that we come from the spiritual world mm. and that the earth was headed for trouble. Mm. And so it's not just, oh yeah, you wield this preparation, do this compost, do with the moon calendar. That doesn't really constitute biodynamics for me. Those are things that are part of it. However, biodynamics is... A complete shift of consciousness from who you, who you are, where you stand, how everything is related, and coming to know these uh, domains uh, in worlds within worlds, beings upon beings. You work with the stars, the rhythms mm. of the stars and the planets and how they affect life on earth. Anything spiritual really has to be practical. Mm. Okay, can you, so can you give us an example of that for yourself? For myself, for me, it, it means that so we can really I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have this amorphous concept of the spiritual world. I have experienced mm. beings that I can identify. Mm. Um, I can know certain things about the life of a plant from spending time experiencing it physically and spiritually so that I know deeper secrets of how it affects a human being. Like it's medicine. It's a little different than traditional Western herbalism or even Eastern herbalism. I know a little bit about that because I'm, I'm fascinated with plants and healing. Mm-hmm. So this whole garden was made to be a healing garden, not just for me and other people, but for nature. How, um, 
how are you getting, how are you like preparing yourself or have in the past to get the spiritual information from the plants? And then how did you learn or did you always uh, know to believe what the information you're getting? Wow, that's a, that's a that's a really thoughtful question, Philippe. Mm. Really thoughtful. From my whole life, I was interested in plants and gardens when mm. I was little. Mm. I had a remember a, a really interesting encounter with praying mantises and in this like vacant lot, of, you know, in the small city that I grew up in. And it was near a floor. It was in the back side of a florist. So I used to like to go and hide in there um, with the weeds. That was my favorite hangout spot. And praying mantises were, I had some intense connection with them. And I always loved my favorite books when I was growing up, besides historically um, referential things. You know, like Little House on the Prairie, I loved that. Mm -hmm. Little Women, mm. things that described old ways and how you lived, doing stuff, making stuff, being in nature. Uh, but magic, all the Eng I had all the English children's books. So this, this was a big deal for me. The Little Prince, Le Petit Prince, mm -hmm. I had that in French. Um, this, was, this was a big part of my underpinning. But my mom was a professional you know, professional, she worked. Mm. And there was nobody to show me how to garden. Mm. I would be in the flowers and all of that. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s or something, and I had a friend who was a gardener in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, not too far from where I was born. And uh, she was working at this famous garden, the Green Animals Garden, and I remember thinking, yeah, when I'm about 40, I'm going to move to the country and I'm going to do this. I'm going to have a garden. Um, but I want to experience, you know, worldly stuff first. So that's what I did. I was actually 37 when I moved out here. And um, as far as preparing myself, the first thing that I did, and I recognize this is, a, this is an important thing for people, modern people, you have to undergo a certain amount of healing yourself. And it's not that you heal first and then go and, you know, tune into nature. It happens in an interwoven kind of way, but it's so many, so much to let go of. And actually, I, I have... I have gone through specific esoteric training, which you do by yourself. Um, there was a little while where we had an anthroposophical group, and that was amazing. But it's a it's a it's a repetitive, continual practice with ever deepening, opening, and periods of stagnation. And and feeling sensing nothingness at times, just like everything else, the garden is continual, repetitive, mundane work. So is esoteric work. 
and you don't go in expecting, oh, I'm going to be clairvoyant. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. Clairvoyance happens, uh, and there are several different forms of clairvoyance. And I'm not talking just about clairaudience, clairsentience, and clear seeing. I, that's not what I mean. Clear audience is hearing. Yeah, yeah. Clairvoyance the, is seeing. Yeah, and it's not it's not like physical senses. So if you're hearing hearing voices, you probably have you should go to you need you need some treatment. <laughs> that's 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 something weird going on. Um, it's it it's more in step with your uh, growth in common sense actually, and your moral development. Mm. That's that's where it comes from, and so it's um, it's not just in the beginning. I think I had a lot of before I started doing a discipline training. I had a lot of experiences, but I couldn't really quite understand them, and some of them were really, you know, surprising, and my dreams. They, they fit and weave into things that have happened in my life now. They definitely haven't proven to be true, although I don't think I, I under, understood some of them in a distorted way. I was young, mm. and clearly there was some capacity for, for seeing, for knowing an experience that was with me. But it's just like any other capacity, right? If you're a filmmaker— mm. You need to learn the materials. You need to learn the context. You need to learn the techniques isn't the right word, but but in a parallel, you would, as a filmmaker, learn the techniques to learn your way. And at some point, things start to change. And you become you have, fluid. Yes, you become fluid mm. and fluent. And so you were so you were doing a very specific spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and self-healing that mm-hmm. then opened you up to more of communication with your plants and to the natural world. Mm-hmm. What was the what was if you was there a name to the practice that you were doing, or you don't? Is it not something you would want to share? Oh, um, like was it a certain religion, or was it a certain? <laughs> no, no religion. Um, in it, I didn't do it in the beginning. I tried to meditate in the beginning. I shopped around for. What was my spiritual path? And this was a very mm-hmm. frustrating thing uh, because I I explored. Shopped around is a good way of, yes. you're like looking yeah, around. Yeah, I, try, I tried things on. And mm-hmm. the, th- the few things that resonated, mm-hmm. this was the time of new age. That did not resonate with me. I looked at a few books and I thought, this is, this is kind of wacky. <laughs> um, Indian, mm-hmm. American. Mm-hmm. Turtle Island Indian. I mean, there's no such thing as American Indian. Indians were before America, but uh, Turtle Island. I love that. That was the. I've been told that was like the name of the American, uh, you know, United States continent. Yes, this continent was Turtle yes. Island. Yes. So that, and I had some very profound experiences with that. Again, because that's in my bloodline, and also something else that I think. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which also caught caught me. And again, it felt like something from the past. There was something familiar with that, but I knew that wasn't it. Uh, Celtic, another part of my ancestry. 
uh, that wasn't it either. Mm-hmm. Well, that that was that was pretty good. And then I discovered biodynamics. I discovered anthroposophy because yeah, I heard you say that. What is that? What's that anthroposophy? Anthroposophy means. It's the it's the wisdom of the archetypal human. Hmm. So hmm. it's a study of and it encompasses this is this is Rudolf Steiner was an initiate of a really high degree, but he was also uh what years was he? Uh, he was born in about the mid nineteenth century and he died in nineteen twenty five. Okay. So he was turn of century writing. Uh, he he gave a lot of lectures. He wrote a little bit. Okay. He he began his work. He was he was clairvoyant mm. as a child, and he had some kind of ex- experience with this herb gatherer, mm. who was connected to another initiate. So that part is mysterious in his life. There's not much known about it. But Steiner began his work, you know, you can presume that he started to wake up a little bit and start to understand he had a mission. Because you don't come in with your full lights on, even if you're an initiate of high degree. You still have to get acquainted with the culture you're incarnated into and learn all over again. Right? It's not like everything's automatic. Oh, here I am. You mean, so even if you're born with some level of quote-unquote shamanic powers there's still a long initiate process oh absolutely yeah absolutely everything evolves plants animals spiritual beings evolve people don't think about that everything the human being you know evolves human consciousness evolves people don't think about that Mm -hmm. it's not static for example anthroposophy and biodynamics is all about processes it's about the activity and the essences and the intentions of everything as part of the whole interwoven dynamic worlds that interpenetrate and work together. So, anthroposophy is many, is many things. You can, you can study spiritual purely esoteric spiritual matters and there are many things you can do movement your rhythmy which can be applied curatively you can do biodynamics you can apply it to botany it's not that you you become an anthroposophist and do anthroposophical things you have your your profession or your vocation in life and you apply you make it anthroposophical meaning you come to understand the real living life force behind everything and how everything comes together, how it works. And people sometimes ask, well, how do you know that? And I said, well, just like, and I'm, I'm only, you know, like a little schmo in all of this, mm. really. Because it's, uh, it's vast. It's vast. And I certainly... You know, I can't even conceive of myself next to somebody who's who's so much more experienced in this and so much more evolved. But I can say for sure that I know enough 
that the kind of senses that I have about things, feeling forces, currents, mm-hmm. what people call energy, and identifying it, it's just uh, similar to somebody being able to identify a particular shade of yellow. Mm. You know, like an artist can identify mm. a particular shade of yellow. Mm, that's very helpful. Interesting. Yeah, yeah so it's not ambiguous. Mm. And people do tend to make spirituality ambiguous and, and oh, it, you know, like you have to speak in a certain way. You have to be this lovey-dovey kind of, all oh, is bliss man yeah, kind no, of thing. Yeah, no, that doesn't work. Yeah, the no. shadow has to be integrated as well. Yeah, and but it's it's not it's not a it's not a it's not an amorphous field of life. Mm. It really isn't. So you develop organs, you develop senses that help you identify these things out of outside of your brain, outside of your intellect. You don't get rid of your intellect. It's useful as a bridge to understand that the world of the subtle senses can be as oh intricate and okay, so how, as, as the world of the physical so senses. So, a sixth sense type thing. How is that not the right word? <laughs> I, I don't. This really, sense that you're building up. Mm-hmm. How do you? I don't know. I'm. I'm trying to just work through the murk of this. Yeah, that yeah. If okay, so if <laughs> you I ask, smell you ask something, a big question. if I smell something, you know, right. it goes into my nose, and I can I can okay. differentiate. So what you know, okay. I've had this might be a little different, but I've had some intense ghost experiences. Mm-hmm. And how does my how do I pick up on that? It's I get chills all over my body. Right. I can feel pressure on my body. So right. what is there a is there something in the body that's telling you that you're now having this energy, you're picking up on this energetic sense? How, how does, or is it fully intuitive? Oh, it's, it's not the body that's, that's okay. somatizing it. Um, I might have done that earlier, but it's, it's my, my soul and my spiritual being. Okay. I'm, I'm aware of those, those aspects of myself. So... Is that the, when we experience something, our soul actually is engaged to a color. We're actually living in the object if, when we see things. When we smell them, we receive. Like you said, it go, comes into me. That's correct because we actually have to make a little space. There's a little. Re- if you stop and like really pay attention when a smell smell approaches, it approaches, and you kind of tussle with it a little bit for a minute. If you're really slowing down your consciousness to pay attention, and then you allow it to in, come in. And you're taken somewhere by the scent, right? You're oh, taken yeah. somewhere. Oh, yeah. You're lifted out of where you were standing in your consciousness. You're brought into a world, and you have uh, some experience hmm. that you try to describe. So it's uh, very much, if you were to study phenomenology, which was a philosophical movement begun by Husserl in the 19th century, I think probably one of the most interesting contemporaries is uh, Merleau-Ponty, the French philosopher. So, but Steiner got his, got his beginning uh, cataloging the works of Goethe. Who, who had the 
who was a scientist, an artist, a poet. A lot of people don't know he was a scientist. And he discovered metamorphosis of plants, Mm. something in between the physical and the spiritual, Mm. like a bridge. So Steiner placed himself in this context and began his work there. And as went on, he became a member of the Theosophical Society to give himself a context within a spiritual movement group, although he quickly established his own independent teaching because he realized there were things that were going on that were like not true, that were actually false and deceptive. And he split from them when they wanted to present uh, Krishnamurti as the second incarnation of Christ. Mm. And, you know, he said, this is, not, this is nonsense. This is dangerous because this is not what that's about. So, that's how he began. So, to, is there something, is there a um, concept or um, a discovery by Steiner that really resonated with you? Like, what was one of the first things where you ah. kind of felt like, oh, I've kind of, I've found the direction that's going to work for my own path? What caught my attention first was in reading his, the lectures that were, they were transcribed from his, his conference. Was he German? He was, he was born actually in an area that was, uh, shifted a lot with the Serbo-Austrian war. Was it Serbia? Was it Austria? Mm. You know, it's hard to tell, but there. Uh, Of course, he spoke German. He had moved to Vienna and and Germany, but he, you know, he went all he went all around. But yeah, he was of the Germanic Mm. people. So it was by his his lectures from the conference, uh, spiritual foundations of agriculture, and I was reading through it. Now, this is this is really an alchemical text. It's very hard to understand, and you read things, and you're thinking, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, this stuff within, then, in the summer, the blah, 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 the beings with the cow horns, and, you know, it really is mystifying, but there are little bits in it, and you, and I noticed I was having f- sensations that I never had in reading any other spiritual book that light was being activated in me. Oh my god. While wow. I was reading. Oh yeah. Wow. And then I came to this thing about how the garden is actually asleep in the summer in a dream and I thought that's it. I've been Can you feeling that? this the the garden is asleep in the summer. It's dreaming. Nature is dreaming. Mm. And I said that's it. I've been feeling this for so long. Like in the winter, everything in nature is alive and mm. thinking and, or not thinking, but, you know, something more equivalent to human thinking, clear and sharp mm. and active and busy. And in the summer, everything's kind of in this hazy, mm. dreamy thing. And I didn't like to interfere with nature's dream in the summer. Holy God. And I said, Nobody has ever mentioned this. You know, this is truth. Truth is not what's peddled all over the place. Truth is really hard to find. And that's what got me hooked. And I said, I'm going to explore this. I'm going to check out 
first everything I can about biodynamics, and then I was led into the where that came from, anthroposophy. Wow, that is a really uh, beautiful thought. Um, yeah, my my Jungian analyst has mentioned a long time ago, and I can hardly remember it, but he did have this. He might he must have been reading. He must have read Steiner and whatnot, but he did have a thought like that where... Um, I think they met. I think they met, actually. Who, they Jung, knew of each Jung other. and Steiner? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but that thought that the... Uh, I don't know. I can't quite say it properly, but something along the lines of that summer being... Basically, you've already said it. Um, yeah, I can't quite find what he told me clearly, so I'll just I'll just move on from there. But, wow, that's... That is really a remarkable thought. Um, well, there's still so much to talk about because you haven't even told us what you do. <laughs> now, do no, you, what you, do I do? Did you want to... So I like to just intermix in the middle of the conversation if, if there's a particular story that you wanted to tell. I think we've had an interesting opening. Is there anything you want to tell now? Anything, a story? I think it would be better to say who, what I, who I am, yeah, okay. what I do, than before we have another Perfect. story, because I feel like this has all been a story. I don't know. I mean, yeah. you ask me questions, and I, yeah. you know, it, people ask me questions, and if I feel the context is right, For sure. things come, I For sure. speak, yeah, but I otherwise I don't organic. say anything. And I, it's hard, because I don't compartmentalize things, and I can't compartmentalize what I do, so... Well, we, t- I, we talked about this before, yeah. So from my point of view, what I know of you, uh-huh. well, one place I'd be awesome to start because I kind of brought up the smell, sensing, is the first time I met you, the thing that stood out most was you're a perfumer. You oh, make yes. all these incredible perfumes. Right. Now, you're also, you know, a master gardener to me, at least. You're, right. you're, you make medicine. I don't know if you necessarily consider yourself an herbalist, but you make medicine out of your plants. Um, you do dyes. Mm-hmm. You're, you're an artist. Mm-hmm. You, I've seen you make little dolls. Mm-hmm. You um, make um, installations with fabric and with plants. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't even know what I'm, for, I'm forgetting because you do so much stuff. Uh, but you're a Renaissance woman. <laughs> um, I guess, let's start with the perfume. Okay. Because that blew me away. And, and how you're just describing the perfume experience a few minutes ago about, whoops, I just knocked my mic, but how you described the taking in of scent mm-hmm. is very fascinating. So what's up with your perfuming? How'd you get into it? Okay. Yeah, I do a lot of different things with plants, that's for sure. Like, and everything, I guess that's the center. That is, that is the epicenter. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the, my feeling, my heart is mm. the epicenter of, of what propels me. But doing things with plants, we talked about it, and you know, somebody called me a plant artist, and you know, a plant medicine artist is something you know, if a label. Yeah, I do. I I know herbalism. I'm an herbalist within this whole spectrum. I have a spectrum of things that I do, and I distill. Of course, right, and you know, I distill hydrosols and. Uh, flower essences, aromatherapy, which is different than perfumery. So the perfumery is. Um, I would like to hear you. And make, I do. I, that, I do. I would uh, like to hear you define the differences. Okay, so I don't just make blends of pleasant smelling stuff. Like you know, you take 
four or five different materials. Is that what a perfume would be? No, that would be more an aromatherapy okay. aromatherapy blend. I want to make it clear there's a distinction. Aromatherapy was has been in existence for a long time, I think, um, using aromatics uh, for sp- healing and spiritual purposes is a very ancient thing. And in burning things in unguents that were made in extracting plant material and fats, uh, distilling, you know, is also very old. That was found to exist a long time ago and clay stills were used. So aromatherapy, as we know it, is a fairly modern invention by the French aromatherapist, Gat Fosse and... Um, a couple of other people. And that is to affect subtle healing with the sense and the, the, the medicinal constituents of materials. I've really felt it with uh, lavender. Lavender, I yes. I felt that instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And so did my girlfriend, Vivian. What did you experience? Um, just like my mind is constantly frenetic and mm. crazed and kind of like thinking about a million things. So it was like instantaneous, just like relaxing, yeah. instantaneously, just like chill out, like a little pause mm-hmm. and, uh, just very comfortable, just a very nice. You got it. You got a low camphor lavender lav. Yeah. Cause lavender can be relaxing or it can be very stimulating depending mm. on the constituents. Mm. Uh, you probably got one with a lot of linalool in it, and so. But that's a that's a good example. Yeah, it has a profound uh, ex- effect on people. The scent. So aromatherapy is used for more medicinal purposes and scent emotional purposes. Perfumery is actually a very structured. Hmm. It's both cerebral and abstract, as well as very tangible and physical. It's very ethereal. Hmm. And it's a rigorous, rigorous art. Hmm. And I love it because it is conceptual as well as physical. That it is... Conceptual, so away from the sense. You're thinking, contemplating what to do. Well... In both its effects and in the process oh. of making it. So it's there's a lot of intuitive activity that goes on for me working. So I actually learned about, you know, I wanted to make perfume when I when I learned about aromatherapy and when I was on that, you know, learning learning how to do that. And, but I couldn't find a solvent. I didn't know where to get perfumers, alcohol, and nothing was satisfying. And I remembered this um, this funny book my mom had given me in the 70s when I was about 14. And it was a, had all these wild, like, 70s psychedelic pictures. And there was an Egyptian page with kaifi in it. And there was, like, this scratch and sniff component. And I loved that book. I wish I still had it. And, it, and I used to look at these Caswell Massey a long time ago, this emporium of apothecary goods and old-fashioned, you know, liniments and such. They had this little black and white catalog that I used to get. I mailed away for it. 
And I'd look at all these materials that were listed because they sold aromatic materials. They had tonka bean, they had apoponics and myrrh and benzoin and uh, patchouli and lavender and rose water. And I'd look at this and I wanted those things so badly, but I didn't know what to do with them. So I just put that all away. I remember living in New York. I loved perfume. And I, I said, yeah, I could have been a nose, you know, because I could, my sense of smell and remembering smell was very developed. You know, that means a career where you're using you your nose, into, you work yeah. for perfumers. Right. You go to Europe and you train. And I thought, well, that's out of the question. I can't really see myself doing that, leaving my partner and going to do that. How would I do that? It was just sort of a little fleeting fancy. Mm-hmm. Like I could have done that because I feel drawn towards this. So when I discovered I could get a hold of perfumer's alcohol, that was it. And that happened. That's maybe the in, solvent? Yes. What is a solvent? It's a carrier of the scent? It, it, dissolves the aromatic materials hmm. you know it that's oh right a, yeah okay. yeah the solvent the alcohol okay and I use, like or, a, I for use, a tincture right well similar it's, it's process well yeah like it not, a, not a similar process but yeah it's a solvent okay interesting so you had a good point i didn't want to keep saying so <laughs> you can say whatever you want uh you had a good point here and tell me if i'm wrong but with the aromatics uh you know they're potent and you have, speaking for myself, an instantaneous kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. The perfume, as you mentioned before, very different. You're taken somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's much more of an imaginative and maybe spiritual experience. You know, I haven't thought too much about perfumes other than, you know, I, I was wearing Hermes for a long time when I lived in New York City. But you're, you know, smelling yours. I mean, you are transported. It's not just like, Bam, lavender, like oh, I feel, like oh, I feel nice. It's like I smelled one of yours, and I was transported to like wet woods, like in a dark forest. You know, it does have like a an imaginary component, a transcending component, or something. That's great. That's great. I, I, is that the aim of what perfume is supposed to do? It can, it can be. I think for a lot of perfumers, it is. It's an experience. It's an experience. So to create an olfactory experience, that's mm. what I that's what I intend to do. And I also like to create one that is not base or sorted. What do you mean by that? Uh, <laughs> um that a lot of perfumes really are pretty skanky. Oh, I see what you yeah, mean. Yes. I'm not interested in that. Like kind of a brothel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of or or they're just they smell nice and they're kind of vapid. I'm not mm. interested in that. Mm. I'm interested in people feeling better. Mm. So even my perfumes have a healing or a medicinal. I have. There's mm. one painter who uses the Ela, for example, the the little perfume that's the Scottish. Scent. Oh, Isla. 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 Yes, I've been there. The Isle of Isla. Yeah. In the the Hebrides, the Scottish Hebrides. Right. Isla. I can't remember if it was Isla or Isla, but it is Isla. Mm -hmm. I've heard people say Isla Mm -hmm. too. I S L A Y. Right. One of the coolest places I've ever been. Yeah. She uses that 
before she paints as a ritual. Oh, I love that. And and so that one had this real peat, this deep peat right, smell. Right, this, like burned the like the peat and sea wood and a little mm-hmm. bit yes whiskey. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, and I describe Earth. it. It's not pretty, very earthy. God, I love it. Yeah, it's a the smell of what I what I remember of parts of Scotland, mm. and just using my imagination. Mm, I'm trying to remember what, where we were in this thread, but yeah, I was asking. Uh, I was just bringing up that notion of the, the difference. Well, the you perfume did, you, has an experience, whereas the aromatherapy is more just uh, an instantaneous body feeling. Yeah, it, it, there can be an experience with aromatherapy, but it's it's much more um, single pointed. It's much more simple and raw. Yes, it's like hearing one note rather yes. than a piece of music. Yes. Okay. If I were to have an analogy, because totally uh, perfume agree. is like music to me. I agree. There are movements. There are structures. There are repeating themes. Well, it's like an incredible dish. That it has, you know, you put it in your mouth and first you get mm-hmm. the salt, you know, it has a depth of flavor that as you're swallowing it, you're moving through a landscape of experience. Whereas the aromatherapy is just that one guitar note or that one violin note, but right. you're not getting the full song. Right. Very interesting. That's an interesting way to look yeah. at it. Yeah. It's, it's much more complex. Um, there's so much more to it. And it's very important for me to say that the perfumes I make, even though I'm pretty rustic, mm. especially after leaving the city, and my garden is a rustic garden. My perfumes are not rustic. They are very highly oh, yeah. structured. And also perfume is related to cooking. If you have a gift for cooking and for combining things, ingredients, chances are you're pretty good at least at, at determining scents because scent and, and flavor, tasting and smelling are, or have share you know some common ground mm-hmm. there. So when I work on a perfume, I have an idea. Sometimes it will be an aromatic that will call to me that I want to work with and highlight. Uh, or it could be there's a flower in the garden I do on florage, which is a very old process of capturing the scent of flowers that you can't distill, that you can't turn into absolutes or essential oils. And also it renders <laughs> a very true little interaction here, mm-hmm. a very true uh, capture of, of the scent. It's, it's true to life. You know, when you put, put the enfleurage after it's extracted in alcohol, which is the extray, onto a, bl- a scent blotter, and bring it up to your nose after the alcohol evaporates, it's like magic. That flower is blooming mm. right there in front of you, right right in your nose, mm. in your whole being, this flower is blooming. Mm. You can, no absolute smells exactly like the flower. No essential oil smells exactly like the plant. Mm. Right, interesting. So It's a version of it. Yes, it's a version of it. The perfumes, I might... For example, like I made a hyacinth perfume, uh, the new one that I'm about to release. I'm wait, waiting for labels, but it's all. And by the time this comes out, this perfume will have been released oh, so I great. can describe it. It's well, what's the title of it? Autumn Hedgerow. 
Mm, beautiful. And it was all touched off by the scent of autumn clematis. So I made an autumn clematis accord. A perfume is composed of different accords that you work together to get these wonderful structures that... What's an accord? That's a... And it's a combination of okay. materials, you know, to... I might have to use 30 materials to describe clematis, mm. to describe this autumn clematis. Mm. And that's only one accord mm. in the whole perfume. So there's a range of different things, and they all have to work together. So they're like big movements in a musical piece. Mm. And there's the a lot of experimentation going to this to find the right... Um, a bit of experimentation, a lot of times stepping back, working on it, stepping back for a year, coming back to year. it. Maybe if the autumn clematis only blooms once a year, I only have one that time to tinker and smell, tinker and smell with it the must real. Must be like when I work on mu- when I've made music or when I've worked on my film work, there becomes a point where you become too into it and you can't see it properly. Yes. You have to step away. Yes, and then come experience it again later. Yes, that can happen. Sometimes I can be in a frenzy when I made um, rose mouillée. That that perfume came together almost so wet rose. Yeah, rose yeah. It's a, it's, it sounds French. it sounds lovely in French. It mm-hmm. sounds horrible in English. But I, I was thinking of a damp rose garden and how the air like uh, is permeated with the scent of roses and some other things. How you could smell rain on the masonry walkway and Wonderful. the whole, But it was more like this rhythm, and I was listening to two different French songs in my head while I was making this and that gave the rhythm of the structure and the way the perfume ascends and descends and so one was La Mer the ocean. which is yeah beautiful song and uh, Charles Trenet uh, is probably the most famous singer of it it's a beautiful song describing the ocean and then there was, uh, and and so the name, the title of the perfume is a little bit of a joke because one of the line is, uh, refers to Rose um, Mouillet, which are the reeds around part of this ocean. So then there was uh, Serge Gainsbourg, uh, Je t'aime moi non plus, which I love you, you don't, I don't love you. <laughs> mm. um, and there's this, this very, uh, I don't know, sensual rhythm to the whole thing because you realize what this song is about. So, you know, opening and closing, um, moving on the air. This was the whole feeling. I think that was Vivian's favorite Mm -hmm. perfume. Well, speaking of my girlfriend, Vivian, I do want to, while we're talking about scents, I want to thank you because both my girlfriend, Vivian, and my mom came to do a a, uh, incense workshop with you and... Now my house smells incredible all the time because Vivian is burning things upstairs and the whole house smells incredible. Um, but Glad I don't, to hear it. Yeah, um, but I don't want to stray away from perfume. So, Well, actually, incense was the, okay. the original perfume. Ah, okay. That's perfumum, perfumum through the smoke. That's, that's what the where, word means? That's where, what it means because uh, aromatics were a spiritual event. They were spiritual activity. And as remember when we talked about and you were realizing, oh yeah, I do experience this. This scent comes into me, and then I'm I go somewhere. Mm-hmm. The more ancient people knew 
because they had a different consciousness structure. They didn't mm-hmm. need to go back to spirit. They were connected. Yes, yes, for sure. And aromatics were a link to the spiritual realm because that's the sense that's most most connected to the spiritual. Mm. It's the most ethereal, non-physical of the senses. You're pointing at the top of your nose at your third yes. eye. Yes, <laughs> yes, I am. And I did that without even thinking. <laughs> so, I mean, I just, yeah, that just happened automatically. This is, they knew this. So when they would light something on fire, an aromatic material, it was a prayer, it was a ritual, it was an offering through the smoke. These beings, elemental beings, arise with the prayers and wishes to the spiritual world and bring the offering. So connecting heaven and earth. From with the wisps of smoke. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the smoke is the bridge. The smoke is the bridge. Holy moly. Yeah. This is where perfume comes from. Wow. And in the beginning, uh, these aromatic materials were rubbed on the body. They were to scent places of worship, temples, mm-hmm. in rituals, gathering for the community. They were used as healing. So much as the Indian of Turtle Island uses certain herbs. Uh, what is the woman uh, from Cedar Hill Homes, Homestead? Oh, Victoria Fillmore. Victoria, right. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about Osha. Mm-hmm. Being yes, built. the Lakota, the, yes. the, her Lakota yes. mentor yes. using this, Osha as yes. percent. So herbs, especially in the Lakota mm-hmm. tradition, are used medicinally, burning herbs. And you find that with a lot of the different Indian nations. Now, I can edit this out if this is one of your secrets. But, uh, you know, we have a fig tree in the backyard. And you showed Vivian Mm -hmm. that you can burn the fig leaf. And that smell is awesome. Yes, it is. And we have a bunch of the fig leaves. We have, you know, kind of have our plants drying in the the darkness of our uh, ground floor, drying from the ceiling. But Vivian has burned some of those fig leaves from our tree. And wow, that smell is awesome. Yeah, it is an incredible scent. It is slightly psychoactive, hmm. so you have to be careful. I like to use it as a wrapping for making a yep. That's what you a, showed a bundle, her. right? Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, Vivian did a this workshop with you, and hopefully, when I guess COVID is done, you'll have more of these workshops. Yes, I hope so too. Um, before we get too far away from perfume, so for me, what I found super cool is some of the weirder stuff that you put into the perfumes. So mm. there's stuff like. There's stuff with like fecal notes. Oh. There's there's like something that comes from the whale. I forgot the name of it. Oh, ambergris. Ambergris. Right. And so can you, just for fun, can you say tell us a little bit about some of the weirder stuff that goes into perfumes? <laughs> okay. Where where do I jump in? Well, you said so there's not, a fecal thing. Well, it's in, in dolls. There are different categories of different uh, types of scent. You could have a floral, for example, a green, green material materials with predominantly green notes. Nothing is ever that flat. Natural materials are very, very complex. They're mm. so much more complex than the synthetic molecules that are used, and also a lot of them are very neurotoxic. But um, there's a lot to be said about all of that. Mm-hmm. But natural materials are incredibly complex. There are many different things going on instead of one. One thing. So again, the difference between one note and a, each aromatic, natural aromatic material is a piece of music in itself. 
once you really get into the business mm-hmm. of olfaction. So indoles describe anything. Indoles is a category? Yes, indolic. Okay. okay. Anything from something that smells somewhat fecal mm. to the smell of, well, you know, this, the way the smell, the sewer system smells in Paris when you walk around the streets. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a. Not sure I picked up on that. Well, the feeling of the scent of How about a country septic tank? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it could be something like that. But a lot of white flowers have this this poopy note. And people actually really like it. No, not really. Jasmine, Hmm. narcissus, Hmm. honeysuckle. These are lilies. Lilies. Lilies also have a little bit of a uranus. Mm. note to or a very personal very intimate kind of scent after they decay a little bit Mm. so that's an indolic ambergris is also like that there's ethically harvested ambergris it's beach wash just beach foraged now that's a sack that's inside of a whale that is material that is discarded, vomited, or... Interesting. Yes. Evacuated from the whale. Stuff it couldn't digest. So something like a little bit of sickness. And the more it ages, the more sublime it is. And you have to tincture it. It's a clump? It's a clump. Some, a sm- It can be small. It can be large. There are different grades from gray to black to white to white gold to white you know, silver. So the whale will, will vomit Eject this up? this, yes. And then it'll wash up on shore? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So unreal. K- kind of like an ocean truffle. Unreal. And it's the most valuable stuff. And it is sublime. It's It has its own scent. And like I said, there are different ones, and they all have different qualities. Some smell more oceanic. Some smell more indolic. Some smell almost floral. And what what it does, and you only need a little bit, it elevates and harmonizes everything in a in a perfume. So it brings all the other materials up to the next level. Wow! And how little are we talking here? Like a pin drop? Like you put a oh, needle 1% in it? Oh, one percent of the whole consi- okay. composition of a perfume. One percent. Okay. And that little. And you're doing that with little. Um, well, you little you droppers. Pipe, you yeah, pipettes, and you weigh it. You you everything is weighed in grams, percentages. So you have to calculate all that. Um, well, <laughs> fascinating to get a scent from a creature, and I told you before. We can edit this out if you don't want me to say it. Oh, there's here. hyracium too, which is fossilized from the hyrax, uh, this animal in Africa. And people call it stone fruit, euphemistically. It's fossilized pea from wow. the hyrax. Again, it's just collected off the ground. It's not harming any animal. I, civet and musk from the musk deer, those do harm the animal. Castor, they do... They do harm the animal. Well, I'm giving you my casters. So I'm gonna try them out. <laughs> they do harm the they do harm the animal, but the the ones that don't are the beach 
foraged ambergris in the hyrax. And those are, those are pretty darn good to use. What's civet? Civet is a civet cat. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. What they do is they torment the civet and beat it so it, ex, ex, you know, it secretes this kind of paste out of, out of its fear and anxiety. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, it does. That's gross. It, yeah, yeah, it's really not nice. And they kill the musk deer, these beautiful, beautiful little deer to uh, extract the musk glands. Mm. Well, I killed some beavers to eat for a farmer. So if you're going to take them, I'm going to give you my castorum glands. Otherwise, I'm going to save them up because supposedly they go for like $100 a pound. I didn't know that. But Vivian might, we yeah. might save some for Vivian to experiment with too. Yeah, they're, they're, but if there's a drying I've process. I've smelled castorium. It's very, very powerful. It's not my favorite scent. Very powerful. It's very powerful. I agree. Um, wow. Um well, I did want to get back to some of your, because I know you have some pretty interesting and unique spiritual beliefs just about um, nature and whatnot. But maybe before we go there, we can keep talking about some more of the stuff you do here. Um, okay. You do dyeing, which I, which to me is super interesting. I think you're wearing one of your scarves right I now. I am. I am. This and is indigo and cochineal. So this has got like a, um, a very lovely blue fading into um, a very... A muted, purpley pink. Yeah, so a muted magenta. Magenta. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love magenta. So what plants went into making that? Well, cochineal is, is okay. actually a scale insect that grows on the cactus. No way. Yeah, yeah. And best stuff comes out of Mexico. And then indigo. Ah. Yep. So those are not something you were able to, to get here. I could grow Japanese indigo. I just haven't had time or space to make I'm I haven't been doing so much dying lately this year because of COVID and because I realized things were going to be different I really wanted to give myself more time to spend in the garden every single day and restructure some areas of the garden and also think about how I wanted to restructure tender flower because I really don't that's the name of your business. Right. I don't like for it to be aspiring uh, in the way that most businesses work. It doesn't work for me because I'm actually growing almost everything. And people don't realize this is a full-time job for three people. I'm one person totally. doing it and harvesting and processing and making the things so I needed to step really far back, and I was glad to have the excuse, I would say. What are uh, you offering? I mean, I know, but can you just tell us? Sure. I make topical and ingestible uh, herbal preparations, and I, I'll be, have a whole lot more this season. But So salves and tinctures, elixirs, extracts. I make incense seasonally. I only make that in the fall, and so you can get it in the fall and winter. I distill hydrosols. I make skin care. Hydrosols are part of the skin care, although you can use them in other ways too. I make the perfume. Uh, is there anything else? Oh, I'll be having some of my flower essences. I haven't sold those for a long time. A long time ago, I used to sell flower essences, but they were for the environment of your garden or your home mm. rather than ones you would take. I made those kind for myself. What has become one of the most popular things that you sell? 
Oh, I don't know. The perfume is always a big thing, okay. and the hydrosols. Okay. I mean, I sell all of it okay. that I have up for sale. So they all have their little... Is there one that you enjoy doing more than the other, or is it kind of like, in a way, you're a generalist I, with these things? You just love it all, so you're... I do love it all. What I like doing the most, but it's the, it's the hardest... I, I get frightened every time I try to make a new one, and it also requires the most unbroken amount of time. Like I said, I could be make it and step back, go work on a frenzy for weeks, you know, until I get it, this, the perfume. I mean, because it's the most challenging. I like, I like to distill something challenging. I like to extract something that people say is hard to extract and, and try to distill that. And the medicine I love making because I love healing work. Mm. But that's not as difficult for me as mm. as the other things. And that's 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 more. That's so much more directly connected to the plants right there in front of me, mm. and my my experience having used them for so long. And learning about them continually all the time, like there's oh there's this that happens and that, so it's that's easy for me. That's like the most easy part. Uh, making incense is fun. Mm. You know, I love that's your like play, That's like playing, mm. and I like that I can only make it for a little while, for one part of the year, because that's the only time I have to stop and play with these things. I brought up a lot of the uh, um, stranger, harder to get things that go into your perfumes. Is a lot of the stuff you use here that you grow out of your garden? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I do have quite a great collection of aromatics. I am, you know, I have a lot of people, colleagues that I interact with from a distance online in the aromatics world and a lot of them go around the world and collect stuff. Wow. Yeah. And Aromatic they, hunters. And perfumers and p- people who are more like me, uh, not big out there in the world. They may have written books. They may have clientele, but they're, and they're, we're, we're known to each other in the perfume world, but none of us are big people. Mm-hmm. Do we're you trade quiet. with them? Oh, Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It, and information, it's a really beautiful group. So I have a lot of materials from these people. One is a, a dude from Italy, and he has great stuff. I got this beautiful vetiver from Mali, of all places. I was really surprised. I didn't know that it grew there. Yeah, I have things that I, I never imagined. And then I use a lot of plants from the garden that people do not use for perfumery. Like what? These are secrets. Oh, okay. All right, <laughs> but yeah. I, I, can ex- I can mention one thing. and Of course, I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, because I tincture things, I make extractions that are very potent with them, and I do the enfleurage. And the tincturing is a different process than it is with herbal. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I have Budlia over there. I have quite a few of those. And it's got a beautiful, beautiful scent. And I extracted that 
and that's material that I have used. No major perfume house is going to want to mess with that because they don't have the patience to spend Mm. two months extracting a material. How do you do that? If that's not a secret, what is the extraction process? Well, the extraction process for an herbal tincture is you place the fresh plant material in the alcohol Mm -hmm. and remove it the next day and put more. And you repeat this process over and over and over again until you get the saturation of scent that you require. So you have to have a continuous supply of this aromatic material. For two months. For two months. Well, it depends. Like you, It could take less. It's done when you your nose says it's done. But for enfleurage, the same thing. It, you know, the French used to make a little note. So it would have a 36 days note. That's how, how many times it was, the fat was recharged with the fresh blossoms. I see a lot of people saying, oh, I'm going to do enfleurage. And they might put the flowers on their plate of fat for three days, and that's not really going to do anything. It's not going to really give you the saturation you want in the pomade. Plate of fat. What is that? The fat is carrying the scent? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. What kind of fat? Well, you can use a lot of different things. Uh, traditionally, it was highly rendered tallow. Okay. So animal fats. Right. Lard. Highly, highly rendered, so it had no trace of animal scent. I mean, because that's what... But olive oil was used in ancient cultures, you know, pressed fresh oils. Uh, what do you use, or is that a secret? <laughs> that's a, a secret. That's All a right. secret. But you can use vegetable vegetable fats. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I have a lot of people... I think I have some raccoon fat in the uh, mm. freezer. Maybe I'll mm. render that out. Oh, gosh. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But a lot of people do ask about those things, and I'm reticent to say this is what I use because first of all the plant and the fat need to match and also people are used to just asking information of people who have been at their field of course in depth for a long time and just ex- expecting that that this these things that you spent a lot of time and money to learn for so long and really applied yourself that you're just going to dispense them at the drop of a hat just because somebody asks you. And I want to have a relationship with somebody within the context of their making perfume and they're having the initiative to go and learn some things and then form a relationship with me. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about it and then ask. For example, I have sure. a friend, I've never met her, but you know, an Instagram friend, Miss Layla from uh, Fum Fragrance out in California, and we talk about our secret perfume things back and forth without any hesitation because we're we trust each other and and also you know we we get excited about that sharing with things, but it's hard for you know if somebody just comes along and looks at my Instagram account and says oh. So what do you use here and how do you do that? Mm-hmm. I had to feel kind of... Yeah, yeah. I was just yeah. asking because I'm interested. Right. But I know what you mean. Like, for instance, when I was It feels doing, violating. Sure. Yeah. When I was doing a lot of film work and people be like, oh, that was so beautiful. Where was that? And it's like, I'm. I, there's no way in hell 
I'm telling you where my locations are. Right. Like, there's no way in hell I would ever tell you that. And I hear that with hunting, too, mm-hmm. right? Or, so, oh, where'd you get that deer? It's like, I'm not telling you that. Exactly. <laughs> or where the saying is. Where's the saying? Yeah. Where's <laughs> that ginseng it. patch? Yeah, Forget I understand it. what you're saying. I was just asking out of curiosity I understand. how this process works. Well, people do use, let me put it this way, people do use anything from shade to avocado okay. to coconut to palm to jojoba. Okay, interesting. So I can say it like that. But if you ask me what I and use, animals I'm too. quiet. Animal fats. Yes. That is really cool. Fewer people use animal sure. fats these days. Sure. Yeah. I don't even know where they would source that. Uh, they're local farmers okay. or hunters probably. Okay. But yeah, people, ha- you know, there's the whole squeamish thing about animals mm-hmm. and animal products and, mm-hmm. and also accessibility. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, so. Would you... Um, You've told me in the past, and we and we can skip over this if you want. But you've told me in the past that you have a relationship with spiritual beings out in nature. Mm-hmm. Would you be open to describing, to tell us a bit about that? I'm thinking. I'm checking. I'm thinking For to sure. see what what is what appropriate. Yeah, what would be good? The most immediate aspect of this is the beings that are in the elemental world, and they are the the ones that work with plants. So. There are beings that work with the forces of the roots, the leaves, the flowers, the seeds and fruit. There's also, there are more overarching beings that work with the whole garden or areas of the garden with the trees. And when I... How do you know you're in the presence of one? Oh, I can feel them. And and certain people, when I've said, people that, if friends that I trust, oh, you can come by when I'm not home and pick this thing up that I have for you. Oh, no, I'm afraid to go in your garden if you're not there. All these, oh, I can feel all these things looking at me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, a couple of people have said that or they're saying, wow, these plants are, are kind of like alive. Here, they're, they're sentient. It's not the plants themselves, it's the nature beings. And you can feel them as we're talking about it, can't you? Um, you I'm really something. focused on yeah. you, so I haven't been picking up that, and I'm not, I need to be by myself a lot to capture that. Right. You know what, something I'll bring up. Like right there. Where? Right there on that stump. Hmm. You can see something or you feel mm-hmm. it? Like Both. What? Like see, what? feel. How would you describe it? Uh, it's 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 taken off now, but uh, it was uh, you know what people call gnome, hmm. gnome being the root beings. That's what gnome means. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's that's a name that was given to them. Paracelsus classified those. What are they doing, and what are they? Oh, gosh! They work with the forces. Uh, the minerals, the earth, they help push the plants up 
you know, they gather up information from the cosmos. This it's this time of year. There's a whole ascent and descent of the nature being forces. Mm. When when we talked about in the summer, these these beings are sleeping. Nature's asleep. They're dreaming, so they kind of rise up into the air and have a cosmic festival dance. They become more, they move from their spectrum of, you know, habitation, you would say, from holding the earth together. What we experience with our senses is nature. These, these are the nature beings. They hold everything together. They make physical life possible for human beings. So they move to unite with their cosmic sources in the summer. And then in the autumn, they start coming back down. As the fire beings come down through the leaves, they burst into color hmm. and change color. Hmm. And the, all, this, all this experience of the whole year and what needs to be taken in as kind of a fertilizer from the, the cosmos comes in down into the roots of the plant and the gnomes work with this. And this is all information, you could say, these forces. I mean, gnomes know everything just like that, like that. They're so fast. And it's, 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 it's way more powerful than a human intellect. Mm. And they're, they're, kind, they're funny. They have like a really dry sense of humor. Mm. But they're also the ones that are the most willing to be friendly. So, the, usually the ones that appear... But they know how to make, how to get the plants started. They know how to work with the minerals in the soil. If you uh, find a rock, a special rock in your path, for example, that's usually because some gnome has been friendly and brought your attention to it or told you where it is. Hmm. The gnomes will tell you a lot of things, but also for me, tree beings... I have a very strong relationship with the elder elder down back. And as you know, I go up to Susan's mm -hmm. in May or June, right? Right? And we distill elder flower, mm -hmm. hydrosol, and get get all excited about that and have new you've participated in that, helping us collect the blossoms too. And last year I was wondering if well, you know, I wanted to have my own elder plants. I had some that had croaked. I guess they got shaded out. Actually, they're, they're coming back. And I was thinking, oh, we're working on clearing this area that had gotten overgrown and, and making it into a whole forest garden, wild, but some parts not wild. And I wanted to establish elderflower down there. So as we're clearing... Last year, I said, oh, look, here's an elder plant. Oh, wow. And I was so happy that this elder appeared, and it was hidden under these vines. And then I looked, and there were the beginnings of a few more. Well, this year, there's a colony of like 20 of them. So it was paying attention to this elder flower and forming a relationship with it, this elder, because I would go down there and start communicating and all of a sudden, the whole area down there is populated with elderflower. 
Mm-hmm. Same thing happened with St. John's wort mm-hmm. earlier this year. So it's not the plant that I'm speaking with. It's the being, the nature being that's in, in charge so, of the elder. But the same thing happened with St. John's wort. I lost all my... In charge of it. It's like a nurturer and protector of the plant? Of the of of the it's of the plant, yes, and then the this elder elder flower I recognize as having a pivotal role in this whole ecosystem of the bottom down there, the where the wetlands are, and it it, it can tell me things about the the plants down there and what needs to be done as far as which things to take out, which things to leave, how to make the design in the space. Also, this earlier this year with COVID going on, it gave me a very important herbal formula for, for using different parts of the elder that people don't usually use. Uh, Stephen Buhner uses them. They have to be prepared in a certain way. Otherwise, they might, people say, oh, they're poisonous. They're not poisonous. They're somewhat toxic if you ingest too much and... If you ingest them and they're not prepared in the wrong way, they could make your stomach upset. You could throw up. That's that's different to me than poisonous. Does the information come like in one flash of insight, or are you like yes. like how you and me are sitting here having a conversation? Are you sitting there with um, whatever this being is having a back and forth? There's that. There are images. There's knowing. Mm-hmm. There also my attention will be drawn to a component plant if there's a multiple plant formula so it will happen like that uh, or sometimes I'll find myself imagining a human just a human being uh, if you could say an archetypal human being and then I'll see things will light up and the plant will be there mm-hmm. but in this particular communication with the elder it's a meditative back and forth mm-hmm. Yeah, and it there's a particular feeling this elderflower has. Mm. And I was told to gather the bark. I mean told, not like a voice in my head, but it's like a thought that right. blooms okay. inside yeah. me with a very particular resonance. You can have the bark and I from from you? No. Well where? At this point, I didn't know there were any more elder elder plants in the, in a particular part of down there. I'd seen uh, one other one. Look to your right. I looked to my right a little ways, huh? And I look, and there was one perfect branch broken off, freshly broken off. Wow. And I took it. This, yes. Wow. So stuff like that happens. Wow. Wow. And I've had even more deeper experiences, but I can't really talk about those with the elder. But I, I had asked before what I could share. Yeah, I was going to ask that. you that. Yeah. So that that was a thing. How did you learn to believe in this information? I write. I always knew it was okay. true. Always, always. I, write I just didn't off know how to do it. I didn't know how to do it. I knew it was true when I would read, like, one of my favorite books is Linnets and Valerians, Elizabeth Gouge from 
gouge, I don't know how you pronounce it, English, an English person. It's a beautiful, beautiful book about magic in English countryside and plants mm. and this man with pointy ears that can speak to the fairies. Mm. Just magical. You believe in those too, right? Well, fairies are different than nature beings. Oh, yes. Fairies are very tricksy people or a race or they're beings of the elemental world. They can be helpful, but they can also be very dangerous. All you have to do is read. If you want to, there's, a, there's, a, there's an upside to the beings in the elemental and spiritual world, worlds, and there's a, another side where there's danger. It's not all, it's not all one thing, all la-di-da. <laughs> but if you ever want to understand the power of fae, the fae, mm-hmm. and, the, and the downside of the elemental world, you just read, uh, what is it, Jonathan Strange and Dr. Norrell. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's the most accurate description I've ever read of that other aspect. There's also a children's book called The Perilous Guard. Mm. And that goes, that has, that has a very good depiction of fairies. So, fairies, I know what most people mean when they say fairy is these, these helpful beings of the, the, that work with the plants. That's what most people mean by them. So, if, that's what they're, if I feel that's what they mean, I'll, I'll talk to people like that and, and use that what term. Do they want, what do they want um, humans what, why do they want a relationship with humans? Which ones? I don't know. I mean, this whole stuff is like outside of my realm of thinking, so oh. or outside of my realm of experience. So, like, what would this this gnome creature? Okay. Why do they want a relationship with people? Because nature needs to be re felt, re seen, re loved, respected by human beings. It's, it's an animate living world. It's the soul life of the planet. Mm. It's mm. the soul life of the planet. That's huge. There are, there are different categories, for lack of a better word. I don't like to use words like that because, you know, categorizing. I know. But it's like cataloging. The, and a, it's hard to speak about these things right, without some kind right, of structure. But that have different roles and different statures and all from the ones who work with the forces of nature to those who work with the laws of nature and conduct the the rotation of the planet and the change of the seasons and the elements. It's vast. It's vast. This is the in-between to the spiritual world, the elemental world. And you begin to experience it when you begin to experience the life force in your body. The life force in your body is related to the life force, the forces of nature, but also something else. And this is what brought me into, for the longest time, I knew there was a secret and I imagined it behind the forms of nature that we can experience physically. And I would be out here in this garden and say, I sense you nature beings. Mm -hmm. I sense you but I still feel like here I am in this physical world. I sense you. You're like shadows there to me. 
And then there's the spiritual world, and it it felt like there was a division. It, it was the division was in me, right? And I had this question. I said, "Well, where is that precise intersection of this the nature world and the spiritual worlds? How does this intersect? Where is that?" And I was led in my experience internally over the course of maybe it took two or oh no wait it took maybe seven or eight or nine years and I experienced it that was a that was a threshold change what was the experience that I can't talk about I can't talk about that but I was led to the domain, the spiritual domain where that happens, I was led to experience the being that is the intersection of all of this. That's that's all I could say about it, Mm -hmm. because it it would all be rendered flat, you know, if I tried to describe it. Mm -hmm. But from that moment on, I didn't... I'm just trying to visualize... Your experience, you know, I could I could possibly take you there in a meditation, Mm, or you know, but maybe maybe not. I mean, I don't know. So you know, I I really like the work of Carl Jung, right? Do you? I'm sure he was very open to all sorts of mysteries, Um, but I guess from my limited understanding of his beliefs in the collective unconscious um, it's like do you think these I guess do you think these spirits and beings and gods are within us um, in our consciousness or are they something like animals and plants are they outside there there or like what are are they their own? thing are they as real i don't know it's so hard to talk about this stuff yeah you can't really ask the question until you start experiencing it on its own terms Mm -hmm. because you know just like you and i would fumble about the mechanics like asking the questions because we're not mechanics correct and my partner correct who's the mechanical genius i mean he he knows to ask all the questions. Yes. And so if you and I have to ask him questions, we don't know what to say. Like, oh, well, well what's the question I'm not asking? For the, for the layman to have some kind of understanding. For the uninitiated. Well, first of, first of all, one has to get out of this whole object-subject consciousness. Mm. That's, the, that's the first thing. Which is what I'm doing. Right, mm-hmm. right. You're dividing, and be, because this threshold I experienced, that took me out of that. Mm. I can use that consciousness. If I'm tired, I certainly will fall into it. But it's 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 not feeling. It's knowing and not mm. feeling. Uh, it's more that each world has its inhabitants Mm. and its inhabitants manifest in a very particular way in the consciousness 
Nature beings are about movement, about processes, about movements. When you get it into spiritual beings, they manifest as experiencing themselves in very particular ways, but you are you are either being experienced by them or experiencing everything through them, depending mm. on where you are and who you're with. Mm. Okay, so it's... I don't really have... I can't talk about it mm-hmm. in a way that, that would be more understandable than that unless mm. you, you were able to go, go there. Mm. So it, it's a change of how consciousness is structured and also the expectations. It's not like a physically ordered world. Mm. Now, here's the fireman. He drives the... I mean, in a way, it's kind of like that. There's the fireman. He drives the red truck. And mm. there's the sound. You have to... There are whole laws that order how these beings move and work. And absolutely, they do work through us. They are in our consciousness. Mm. We are not separate. We, are, we only make the separation in object-to-subject consciousness. But then that's a good thing because if you were to experience this indiscriminately and without knowledge and without pe- preparation, you'd go insane, mm. right? And you also have to know that you don't want to have this, that it happens in stages of development. You can go there and not go there by by your work and determination, by your intention. Or you can be in this journey also. to it, It's a stepwise thing through these levels of consciousness. And while you might be able to perceive things from one level of clairvoyance, the imaginal realm, you might not be in what in anthroposophy, in intuitive level, which is very different than what people mean by intuitive, that is where you're living with the beings mm. and experiencing their consciousness. So that's a very advanced level. Um, so it's it's not a... There's no one, two, three answer mm-hmm. for all of it. What happens is it's an experiential thing. And often you will not really understand the experience until you get training so that you can understand. It would be like waking up in some foreign country and everybody's speaking this sounds and they're not making any sense to you and they're doing weird things that you've never seen and they have strange customs and you can't even take it all in because, you know, what's going on? You can't make any sense of it, but you have an impression, but you have no way to sort it out. Mm. That's, that's what it would be like if you go in without any training mm. and without understanding it's going to take a long time to understand what you experience that if you don't give yourself this you can come back with very distorted conceptions of what's going on you can come you can get yourself into trouble <laughs> you can you can fall into a lot of illusion and delusion so i 
guess I can relate to that with my dream work, right? You can misinterpret dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, the language of dreams is, uh, I guess my Jungian analyst probably gets frustrated with me sometimes because I like to literalize things as I'm trying to do with you. Um, so, you know, I have a dream where an alien approaches me and I'm like, I'm going camping next week. Is an alien going to show up in the woods where (laughs) my my Jungian analyst is like, it's a symbol, it's a symbol, you know, it's a symbol of the self, you know? So, um, yeah, I can understand that. I think just by the interpretation of dreams and how it's, how there's a language to learn, um, and they can unfold over a very long period of time. Yeah, I guess I was just asking all these things because I'm just interested in I'm interested in in people's unique experiences, and the best way I can understand them is usually through uh, just hearing um, the, the explanation of an experience. So, if it were like an ayahuasca trip, the best way I can understand it is by hearing um, kind of this step by step process and hearing what the visions were one step at a time and hearing them described so I can feel like I'm kind of in it with them. So that's the best way for me to understand some more of these kind of esoteric or ethereal or spiritual or things that are heart, that, you know, things from another, other levels of consciousness. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's how most people have to approach it because you're, you're apart from it. And how do you find your way into that story so you can Correct. maybe try it on, uh, see if you can, you can resonate a little bit or just look at it as a, a story and think about it. There are many different ways you can approach it, even from the object, subject consciousness. Mm. When a person is in opened up, it is possible to stand in the same space together and know you're both feeling the same thing at the same time. That's, that's rare. Mm. I've experienced that. I've had people freak out on me because that's happened. But it's rare. It's You're both experiencing the same thing? Mm-hmm. I've, I've had that happen with ghost stuff with my sister twice. Mm-hmm. We're, all the people around us, one instance was in the Paris catacombs, and all the people around uh, us are just completely normal. Uh-huh. They're just like sightseers in, uh-huh. a, in a museum. My sister just starts crying uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. I'm shaking with something pushing me and -hmm. we're surrounded by human skulls Mm -hmm. and we're looking at each other like, what is going on? And everyone else there is just like, oh, we're just at the museum. Right. And me and my sister are like getting knocked, like blown apart by something. Yeah, it's souls, human souls that are still trapped in the physical plane. That that, that can be... Th- those are times when I have had physical sensations, and that's what they're, they're, I pick they're up on. More they're than unnerving. Else. Oh yeah, they're unnerving. But, oh, I but cried hard until you that. realize they're trap trap souls, and there is a way to help them move mm. along mm. where they need to go, which is a good thing to do. But yeah, that's that's a the things with nature are more more subtle. I don't even think about this stuff too much anymore, really, yeah. because you're just living in it. Uh, yeah, for the most part, unless there's something I really. I mean, there's there's always there's always a dialogue going on with me. Sometimes it's just through my work and the way I'm, I'm in my work. And I think I've told you before, like the very few times I've ever slipped out of a very like uh, uh, grateful 
reverent kind of mood as I'm working, even doing the mundane things in the garden, digging, harvesting, you know, the way I touch plants. And I'm always communicating to the nature beings that I care. And the few times when I've been distracted, something will happen. I'll like bonk my, myself or a wasp will sting me or, so, or I'll, I'll get stung by a caterpillar touching the plants or a grass blade will cut my finger. Mm. I mean, that's happened a few times and I realized, oh, I wasn't paying attention mm. and I was being careless. Mm. So there's an immediate, uh, hey, Get back in. Yeah, get back in. Come, come back with come us back. here. Come back into this fabric of life. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go? Little reminder to wake up. That's very beautiful. It is. I guess the ways that it can I, be painful too. <laughs> I guess the ways I felt some of this, uh, some of the stuff that maybe you were talking about, is I guess more in a visual way. You know, I always wonder about when you're walking through the woods. And there's one leaf that's like waving. Oh, yeah. And you're just like, how is it possible that there, there's there's some tiny air current or something is trying to like, that to me feels so intensely like a little spirit. Well, well, here's a perfect one example. One leaf in the entire woods just yes. shaking uncontrollably at you. Uh-huh. Yeah. This, this kind of thing happens. And for example, this year, when... All my St. John's wort plants died up here, and I thought, wow, what am I going to do for this preparation that I make and that? I really need that. And I went back in the woods and the upper area where it was cleared, and there's kind of uh, an open circle there. I looked, something caught my eye, like that feel, that feeling. And I looked down, and there's a St. John's wort plant. Oh, <gasps> wild. And then another one and another one. And Pretty soon the whole thing was covered back there with St. John's wort plants. There must be like 200 St. John's wort plants that appeared within a period of a few months. And every time I look, there's a new, there's a, there are new ones. So they're, they're spreading. The more I have paid attention and been grateful, the more, the more appear. It's like sourdough ferment. But what happens in those moments, for example, I, can, I have terrible nearsightedness. I'm walking on the road, on my walk, and all of a sudden, my my eye, bef- before I even come upon it, will sense something, and it will be a very special plant or an insect, and I will and I will go right to it, even with my finger sometimes before I even really see it. That is because our soul is experiencing these things ahead of our intellectual mm. consciousness, ahead of our sense consciousness. So there's a perfect example of how, how we perceive. So if you, you can't get more spiritual than that in some ways in your daily life because that's, that's understanding how you work. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not just thrown together willy-nilly. We have a construction. Mm-hmm. And when you understand that construction and what it can do, it gets exciting. Mm. Life gets exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot to think about. I have to re-listen to this a few times. Um, we never even got to any real stories, but well, I'd like to. Do you All think right. you still you still have a little energy left? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, yeah, I'm fine. So yeah, the point of this podcast was really 
And, you know, sometimes I get it in the interviews and sometimes I don't. And now I'm realizing I need to just be, um, I've gone into some of these interviews with expectations and I realized that is a major error on my part. Mm. Um, and that often I think that the person just needs to tell what they want to tell. And when I've gone in with an expectation, say I go into the interview like I did with this uh, sheriff, fur trapper, I, I, well, fur buyer, with it, I was expecting and hoping and wanting to hear a numinous story, and I didn't quite get it. And because I didn't get it, I was kind of distracted the whole time. So I've had to learn, all right, enough of the expectations. This is an organic conversation. Let it be what it is. Yes, in advance, I can ask, hey, do you have any numinous stories? But it's not... <laughs> What's your best numinous story today? Exactly. Bam, go. <laughs> and if you don't have one, I'm annoyed and not connected. But, you know, having to tell myself this is a conversation as a life form of itself. Um, though, if you did have some kind of story that might illustrate in a very interesting, potent, uncanny, mysterious experience with nature in any way, shape, or form... I would love to hear. Sassafras was this shape-shifting cat. She had big round eyes. She was a tortoise shell, no white. And she had a lot of nicknames because she seemed to imitate a lot of different animals at times. Sometimes she would be like a bear cub. Sometimes she'd run like a hyena. Sometimes she'd be like a lemur. She was really fascinating. She was... There was another cat who was my main cat, my heart cat. Sassafras came along. I found her knowing I was going to find her and knowing what her name was going to be. And after I had this vision of her and the time she would come, she was in a parking lot, uh, this little cafe grocery store that used to be in Sperryville called Mountainside Market. And she was under the car. And we inquired about her. Oh, they had been feeding her, but she was a stray. And I asked if I could have her. And I had to be interviewed by the children, the son. And he said, just what do you know about this cat? And I said, well, I don't know her yet, but I would like to. We'll give her a very good home and feed her well. Well, I guess you can bring her home with you. He was conducting his formal interview. So she hid under the sofa for two weeks and finally came out one day and stood on the kitchen floor and said, (laughs) she was a dear, dear cat, really wild, crazy, silly, the loudest purr you ever heard. And when she died, she had been ill for some time, and I knew she was going to die. And it was hard. I was glad I was home. And then we came to the moment when she was dying. I was by myself. I called one of my friends, my best friends here. Kim was at work, and she came too late, but I knew Sassafras was dying. And she died, and I made a beautiful, I I I put essential oils on her, kind of like an Egyptian rite. I picked beautiful flowers and plants from the garden, found a beautiful, very precious piece of cloth that was really soft, and I laid her on the table in my, my apothecary, 
my office, apothecary, perfumery, it's all, all those, and lit a candle and had that going. And I went out to scope out a place to bury her. And there was a place in the front yard because there are places she used to hang out with. My other cat is buried right there. Um, and I was a little dubious about this area. I wasn't quite sure, but Kim dug the hole when he came home in the dark. You know, he was out there crying, digging the hole. And we put her, put her in the ground. And in the morning, I went out to see if everything was all right. And there were shrubs there. There's a shrub, uh, hydrangea, beautiful hydrangea, and ferns, big ostrich ferns, and all kinds of spring ephemeral plants. And she died in July. And I went out there, and all of a sudden, right on the very spot, this fawn, this little fawn rose up and looked at me and then ambled off. And I just knew that was a perfect place to have, have put her, that this little fawn was there guarding, guarding her, her grave. And that makes me think about how you have had a fawn in, living in your house. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that, that fawn came on my birthday one year when I was having a terrible, terrible, terrible birthday. And it, had, it was late at night and it was storming and this fawn had been crying for hours and Kim had said, what is that? I said, that's a fawn. You know, they make kind of a bleating sound. And he said, oh, well, we have to get it. And I said, no, that's not a good thing to do. The mother will come, but hours and hours and this fawn was attracting a lot of attention. I said, okay, I really didn't want to. So I went outside. I had I'd gone out there before, and the fawn came out of the woods crying to me, and I quickly ran away. And so when Kim kept pestering me about this, you know, he was feeling terrible. And I said, yeah, you know, really, I, I understand, but it's not good to interfere. Something happened to the mother, maybe, but it's best to leave them out there. And it was just, it was getting too bad. And I was worried a bear was going to come and eat it. So I got it. I had looked online. I was panicking. Oh my God, what do I do? Okay, it can take goat milk. Kim runs up, runs up all the way up into Front Royal to get goat milk. You know, it's one o'clock in the morning and I'm in the living room. I think we got the wood stove going and I've got this fawn in my arms trying to warm it up partway in a blanket. I'm on, a, on the floor with blankets and this fawn and it's trying to nurse on me everywhere it can because it's so hungry. And yeah, Kim finally came home, got the milk diluted to the right thing, the right proportion, heated it gently. Uh, it took me a few minutes, but finally got the fawn. I put some on my finger, stuck my finger in its mouth. Then it took the, the nipple of the bottle because Kim had to buy a baby bottle. Feeding this fawn. You know, I had been calling wildlife rehabilitators. None would take it. None, some wouldn't answer. And finally got to talk to one. Oh, can't take it. Can't you do something? <laughs> it told, you know, gave me some ideas. And... We had it for 10 days, 10 days. Deary, I thought it was a, a girl until, until I went to try to make it pee 
because you have to make it pee and poop. Uh, so, because that's what the mother does by washing it. So you take a, a warm cloth. And I really don't re- recommend people picking up fawns. And maybe we shouldn't have this in here because I don't want people to uh, to think they can go taking fawns because really most of them are not orphaned. We're pre- we were pretty sure this one was, although we're not entirely. But you have to stimulate it by, with a warm cloth, like the mother was washing it, and then it will pee and poop. So we had that going on. We had the cat, Winnie, the new cat, running around looking at this deer. The deer finally standing up and clambering around on the wooden floors, clop, 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 kind of skidding, uh, sleeping in there, sleeping with Kim <laughs> in the because he stayed in the living room to keep it warm so it would sleep crooked up under its arm, feeding it, then finally taking it outside. It was living in the potting shed, and then we'd bring it outside and to poop and do its stuff and I'd talk to about the plants, and I'd start running around to get it to, um, and you have to give it some dirt too, but I'd start running around to show it, you know, that's got to learn to run and all this kind of stuff. So it started leaping, doing all these things. Well, in 10 days, we had somebody take it, and we, we brought, she came actually and got it because she had some other fawns she was going to rehabilitate, and I thought that was great because deer or herd animals and we did get to go visit it and the rehabilitator said this was the wildest of all the ones she had but Deary came right up to me right up to me yeah and I even had a dream about Deary but Deary used to you know lick our faces cuddle up to us beg us for pets really the most sweet touching animal but the thing with my father, this was this was before Sassafras died. This was in the rental place, and there I had this circular garden, big circular garden, and th- this was a really magical garden. I never had any deer eat any of the plants, except when I started to move and dismantle. Then the deer started coming and chewing up all the plants. But we had this little platform feeder outside there with bird seed and a hanging bird feeder. And sometimes there would be, I'm not kidding, a lineup at night. There would be a fox sitting there eating, and behind the fox a raccoon, and behind the raccoon a deer. And they would line up in a line to come eat out of this bird feeder. It was crazy. I remember one night the raccoon got annoyed and nipped the deer or something. You know, it wanted to turn. Maybe the deer had gotten in front of the raccoon. But this garden was really powerful. I was right near Old Rag. And I remember being outside in the garden. And I started having this conversation with my father, who's back in New England. My father had not been well for, for a long time. He was diabetic. And a conversation in my mind, like a mind, my mind, yeah. And I had this, was having this conversation with him. And it was all about letting go not holding a grudge against my mom. They had divorced when I was 20 or 19, I think. And he had a new wife. And it was it was a very intense thing. And I remembered two days before, something very strange had happened. All of a sudden, 
a, I found a robin, a full-size robin that had just like dropped dead outside the door to go the back door to go out to the garden. Okay, like I wasn't used to have seeing an, a, a bird kind of drop drop dead. It was obvious it just dropped dead. And the day after that, this big blue jay dropped dead, like almost in the same place. And uh, that came into my mind, and and in the, in this conversation with my father, I realized I'm going to go in the house and find out my father just died. And I was walking to the house. I was like, "Of course, my my mom wanted to name me Robin when I was little." My father said, "I'm not having my daughter named after any old bird." And my father, you know, if he were a bird, he would be a blue jay. He was. He was tall, he was big, he was loud. He was very extroverted socially. Real blue jay. And so I realized, oh, this was my little signal. I didn't quite understand. And I had been having this funny feeling for a couple of weeks. I forgot to mention that. Like the song was running through my head related to where I grew up. And I didn't quite understand that. But I went in I went in knowing that my father had died and looked. There was a voicemail. It was my stepmother. And she said, yeah, your, your dad just died. It's a really strange thing mm-hmm. to have yeah, those. That's incredible. Yeah. So did. you kind of had the deathbed communication mm-hmm. telepathically. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's not the first time that kind of stuff has happened. Mm. Uh, and then there have been others, but that was that but the weeks preceding that, I didn't tell the story very well, but the weeks preceding that, I kind of went back and forth as I remembered it, but Well, tell us now. Yeah. Yeah, well the weeks preceding it, feeling slightly sad and being haunted by this song and and this feeling like I didn't know what it was. And then the birds dropping dead and not understanding that, knowing that it was a, a sign of well, something. What are the lyrics of the song? Do you know? I can't even. They, it's about, it's it's just such a dumb song. Like, mm. I don't know, places in my life that I remember. I think it's Marie-Louise von Franz, who was a student of Jung and then carried on with her own work as a fairy tale um, fairy tale analyst, I guess. But I think I've read from her that uh, one should pay attention to the songs that are playing in your head. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, yes. I'll, I'll often be walking around yes. with one sentence of a song circulating in my head. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is this? What's the sentence that I keep saying over and over and over again? Mm-hmm. And how is that applying to my current psyche and what I'm doing in my life? Like, what's going on with this song lyric? So I find that that's very fascinating. I once helped... Um, actually more of an acquaintance but for some reason she invited me over to uh i guess to help um i guess she had just gotten her father's ashes and for some reason she invited me to like be there for this at her house at her apartment and we opened up the ashes out of the tube you know they just give you kind of a crude cardboard tube from right from the uh where he was um what's the word Cremated. Cremated, thank you. Uh, and we were going to transfer that into, I guess, a pot and urn. And when she, well, when she opened 
that container, oh my God. When she opened that container, like the mist, like the dust, the ash mist kind of lifted out of it and all my hairs just went and just like stood on end. And uh, then her TV was on in the background, just like a, like a radio station. And mm-hmm. an instantaneously a song came up, which was like a song, one of her dad's favorite songs with this haunting lyric about death and whatnot. And I was just, oh, and th- it was a, a lyric about like everything will be okay kind of a thing. Uh, and I was like, holy moly. So, uh, well, thank you for t- sharing those stories. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm realizing back even before all of this, there so many things happened that, you know, we kind of went through this in a meandering. Yeah. Well, that's haphazard my way, But that's okay. Yeah, because I was remembering when my brother died and all of that, too. That was also very strange. That was actually really the beginning of my venturing onto this path. Your brother? Mm -hmm. My youngest brother when he died, Mm -hmm. when he was 26. Oh, so you must have been quite around that age, too. I was 26, 31. And that got you into moving to the country and having this relationship to nature and the plants? No, I was still in the city then. That got me into working with plants and 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 re, and remembering there, that there was a spiritual world. Remembering. Mm. Do you care to talk more about that? Mm. Maybe another time. Yeah. Because it's it's... Yeah, I would have to. I would have to be in a in a different sure. different place because we're we're moving out of more nature things into more. But it but it was it was uh, it was a very compelling time in my mm. life. Mm. But that that got me to make a, an about face change mm. in the way I'd been living. You yeah, know, well, in New York, going out all the time, mm-hmm. smoking, drinking. <laughs> Hey, Being I, a glamour girl, I did the same thing, and then, then, then that propelled me into what am, am I doing? Mm. And mm. yeah. All right. So should we wrap this up? Okay. Well, so to end it, obviously, I want you to tell a little bit more about how people can see what you're doing, read your posts on Instagram, check out your products, anything like that. Can you tell people where to go? Yeah. The website is simple, tenderflower.net. And my Instagram handle is tenderflower.botanicals. I put a lot more stuff on Instagram than I do on my Facebook. And in my stories, there I usually show sometimes things that I'm working on or thoughts that I have that when I write stuff on my stories it's interesting people really like that they mm-hmm. like to hear if I talk about an experience mm-hmm. or describe some part of my childhood like a love that yeah like I had a little summertime travel mm-hmm. travelogue once and people really like that but you can see what I'm doing I don't post a lot on Instagram because it's it's really tricky, but that's where you can see get a feeling for what I do, and it runs the gamut. As I said, you might be seeing me holding up a bunch of roots, 
or making a preparation of herbal stuff or products or perfume or flowers, the garden, whatever. And your artwork. And my artwork. It's not, I don't really have that on, on my tender okay. flower botanicals. In my studio, my studio account is private. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, after somebody started being too inspired by my ah. hanging pieces and everything, ah. I decided to make another natural dye person. I decided to make it private. And also, I'm not able to work on that stuff much at all at this point. Yeah. And then when your classes do come back, what were, what were you doing? So you had an incense class? I was uh, The first thing I was going to do, which you and Vivian were planning to take, was an immersion in being able to experience the nature beings, um, the ways of uh, plant ID and harvesting, but from a, a certain perspective with this whole care, care towards nature and I was really looking learn, forward to learning that. more esoteric things about nature. So becoming prepared, beginning to be prepared to how to develop a relationship with nature, with the numinous in nature. Mm. Going on plant walk, walks is so awesome. And it it's is so interesting. Mm -hmm. The person who's doing the plant walk, if you're getting, you know, one person might give you fully kind of dry scientific everything mm. the other person might just give you tons of historical stuff which i love historical mm -hmm. uses that is cool love that and then you know yours sounds more on the on the numinous side of this plant walk so i love doing those so that would be really exciting and i hope you'll still do that once it's safer. i hope so too i want to do that i wanted to do an outdoor plant dying class very cool. There were there were a couple of other things. Oh, and I wanted to do one on Gertian science and plant metamorphosis, which would involve drawing, mm. drawing cool. and observing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Thank what a you pleasure. very much. It's cool to talk to like a friend, and you know, we've talked for probably two hours, and I've a long time. I've learned things about you that it's so wonderful to do this because I learned things that we've never talked about. We haven't. I mean, we have, but not like maybe this. not not dedicated time yes, to exactly. really sit, because usually you're in motion, I'm in motion, yes, exactly, and it's a little more haphazard. Or we, or in a social setting, we, it's with other people, and we yeah. start talking about art. Yeah, we bring up something. these topics, but it's just very interesting to sit for this long with someone and really see their point of view, their life experience, and see what their view of life is. That's what's fascinating for me doing these these interviews.